Good morning. I guess that's my signal. I promise you I won't count to 10. Uh, my name is Matthew Diller. Welcome to Fordham Law School. I have the honor of being the dean of this great law school. It's great to see you all here today. I love that sense of uh, pre-conference anticipation in the room, almost palpable. Um, and I just want to say a few words of introduction and thanks. Uh, I want to thank uh, Sarah Gates, Editor-in-Chief of the IPILJ, uh, and Dylan Helfand, uh, the Symposium Editor, um, and all the staff and editors of the IPILJ. And let me just say that uh, intellectual property is a field that's really at the core of what we do here at Fordham Law School. We are, after all, in the creative capital of the world. And uh, can you hear me? Maybe I should have said one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. But, um, uh, but we have an amazing number of opportunities and programs that really focus uh, students, faculty, scholars, alums, and practitioners around key issues of intellectual property. We, of course, have the uh, IPILJ, which is one of the leading journals in the field. Uh, and that synergizes with our IP Institute um, directed by uh, Professor Hugh Hansen, and with our Center for Law and Information Policy, uh, headed up by Professor Joel Reidenberg, who is with us, there he is, uh, with us here this morning. Uh, and then, of course, we have a uh, wonderful uh, IP clinic. Uh, and so the range of opportunities here for uh, Fordham students to really dig into IP is something we're very, very proud of. Um, turning for a moment to this morning's uh, Conference, Protection of IP in the Age of Innovation. Of course, the relationship and connection between innovation and IP, that's a deep one, right, that goes back hundreds of years. It's what it's all about. You can't have uh, innovation without intellectual property. There will be no incentive there to uh, innovate. On the other hand, if everything is locked up in property rights, then there's nothing left to innovate on. Uh, what a conundrum and uh, paradox that people have been puzzling through. And of course, the answer is finding the right mix and balance between uh, those two goals and uh, priorities uh, in a way that really works to create a culture and incentives around innovation. And getting that right is, of course, critically important to our society. And the point that I'll make now, and what I think this conference focuses on, is that uh, we are continually restriking that balance as the world changes. And we live in the moment where uh, change is so rapid and the pace of innovation is so fast um, that the application of our IP laws and doctrines to the changing world is continually brought into question. Uh, and the issue of whether we should be reshaping our approach to IP, rethinking how we handle it in light of everything going on, uh, it's just continually at the center of the policy issues and the major questions we face as a society. So in a number of levels, a number of ways, uh, the panels throughout the day will be focusing on this issue in areas that are changing incredibly rapidly. And to launch us all into this discussion, I'm very excited uh, to be able to introduce our keynote speaker, um, who is, uh, uh, who uh, don't come up quite yet, but uh, who is uh, Carl Kill, who is an uh, entrepreneur, who has um, launched a number of new ventures and uh, I'm happy to say is a great graduate of this very law school. Um, Carl uh, uh, spent 22 years at Bloomberg, including more than 15 years as the general counsel. 
at Bloomberg, Carl built and managed a global legal and compliance department that supported all aspects of Bloomberg's worldwide businesses, including data, news, software, and electronic trading. Carl was a founding principal of Bloomberg Tradebook, the company's electronic agency brokerage firm. He was also Bloomberg's risk manager, overseeing all insurance coverage. Um, Carl started here uh, as an evening student. He's a graduate from the class of 1995. And while he was uh, in school here, he had a career as a broadcast journalist. Uh, he was with CNBC, Financial News Network, and 1010 Winds Radio, uh, and Bloomberg. Uh, and when you, you hear him speak, I think you'll, you'll understand why. Um, Carl regularly lectures on legal, business development, and entrepreneurial issues, including at, at Fordham Law School, uh, where he is chairman and co-founder of the Entrepreneurial Law Advisory Council. And I'm so happy and pleased to be able to work with you on that project, and thank you for your leadership. Carl has served on the board of directors of a number of charitable organizations, including the Madison Square Boys and Girls Club and the Inner City Scholarship Fund Lawyers Committee. Uh, and uh, as well as the Yorkville Little League Travel Baseball Coach. So look out for the Yorkville Little League Travel Team. Uh, and Assistant Scoutmaster for Boy Scout Troop 414 in Manhattan. Uh, as a student, Carl served on Fordham Law's IPL, ILJ, uh, and graduated magna cum laude from NYU with a BA in broadcast journalism. Uh, Carl's wife, uh, Alexis Christophorus Kilt, is a broadcast journalist, and they live in Manhattan. Carl, uh, welcome to Fordham Law School. Thank you so much for your words today. Thank you. Hi, good morning, everyone. And thanks so much for having me here today, and thanks for being here yourselves. Thanks to uh, Matthew, I really appreciate those warm remarks. And I also want to thank uh, Sarah Gates, the editor-in-chief of IPLJ, and Dylan Helfand, he's the symposium editor. And at the risk of uh, embarrassing Sarah just a bit, uh, I met Sarah for the first time about probably five years ago uh, when she was an undergrad at NYU. I went to NYU uh, undergrad myself. And uh, long story short is we had a mentoring program at NYU for people that were interested in going to law school. And I met Sarah and had a discussion with her about law school. I basically gave her uh, two choices that I thought would be exceptionally good. Uh, Fordham Law School during the day or Fordham Law School at night. Two excellent choices, right? So uh, here she finds herself at, at Fordham Law School and also editor-in-chief of the IPLJ, so that, that's just uh, phenomenal. So the topic of the day, the protection of intellectual property in the age of innovation. And uh, intellectual property protection, uh, obviously not only crucial today, but, but it's really been crucial throughout recorded history. I think we always think of ourselves as living in the age of the greatest innovation. But if you look back, you know, people have been innovating uh, from the earliest times. And uh, as uh, the dean mentioned, uh, my wife is Greek, uh, Alexis Christophorus. And if you know the Greeks, uh, the Greeks typically uh, will find some way uh, not necessarily wrong, just find some way to kind of claim that they started everything. I mean, they did, did start democracy after all. And, and I was thinking about this while we were in Greece traveling over the summer with, with our three kids. And, and I was, as I was thinking about the ancient Greeks, you know, often claiming at least some ownership in, in the creation of everything, including, you know, democracy, building techniques, shipping, uh, you name it. 
Uh, I even saw when I did a little bit of research on uh, how patent law evolved that, uh, no surprise, uh, the Greeks could really be recognized as the inventors of, of patent law as well. And I'm, I'll be sure to let Professor Katsouros know that, if he doesn't know that already, uh, for those of you who know Professor Katsouros. But if you look through the, the centuries, certainly, uh, also as, uh, as the Dean alluded to, uh, patent law has evolved with the times and is, is obviously absolutely essential because, again, Though we, we would love to think that, that people would love to innovate in and of itself, just the, the pure joy of creating something new for the benefit of all. But there's just nothing quite like that financial incentive, the ability to create something and protect it exclusively for some period of time to make you really put all of your uh, time, energy, and resources into getting something uh, unique done. So as I, as I was talking about, uh, you know, the importance of innovation and the, and the desire for, for civilized societies to promote innovation uh, by giving inventors some form of economic incentive. Uh, and, and this quest for wealth, you know, definitely fuels innovation. And the patent system, again, is absolutely essential in making sure uh, that, that happens. Fast forward to uh, today's new economy. And you think about, you know, what drives the economy today. And you think about the software-based products that, that seem to create instant wealth for the people who come up with them, uh, protect them, and uh, figure out how to monetize them. And I, I feel, uh, you know, standing here about you know, 25, 26 years removed from having started law school here at Fordham, I feel like I've been involved in this uh, information and social media economy really from the beginning, uh, which, at least in my mind, I placed at about 25 years ago. So in the early 1990s, when I was a law student here at Fordham, uh, we had just started the uh, Fordham Law School Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal. And it's certainly a mouthful, and, I, and I'm, I'm, in, in a lot of ways, I'm really glad the, the lengthy name has stuck. Um, and by the way, in the early days of the journal, I wrote a note on why uh, patent disputes should be decided, uh, I thought, quickly and, and relatively inexpensively by using patent arbitration. Uh, I thought a patent arbitration panel would make a lot more sense than a court system, uh, which would be too time-consuming and expensive, and, and the judges might not necessarily understand the, the subject matter. And it, it takes me right back to writing that note. I wrote it, uh, being a broadcast journalist by trade, I wrote the note in a very uh, almost magazine article-like style, uh, almost a, a broadcast news style with footnotes. So again, I'll be eternally grateful to the editors of the IPLJ in the early 90s who actually really understood the nuances of blue booking and made sure that that note had uh, uh, hopefully the correct footnotes. But if you want to check it out, you know, 20 years later, it still hopefully withstands the test of time and you'll hopefully find it to be uh, you know, fascinating reading, just like a lot of the stuff you might see in the journal. But anyway, I, I mentioned the long name, Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal. And, and why did we give it such a long name? Uh, frankly, because we were trying to cover a lot of bases and didn't really know, uh, you know what else to call it. Uh, and at the time, uh, there really weren't classes with names like intellectual property. Uh, there were, of course, classes like patent law, trademark law, uh, copyright, media law, entertainment law. Uh, in fact, my trademark uh, professor was one of my favorites. Uh, he was a young guy named Hugh Hansen, who if you're here at Fordham and, and interested in intellectual property, you should certainly be uh, familiar with. 
uh, and he gave me a great basis in trademark law uh, back in the day. But there was no formal program here back then in intellectual property. Uh, so I, I kind of innovated my own schedule. And uh, yes, I was an evening student, uh, but I also asked uh, the dean at the time, uh, Dean Furick, if I'd be able to take some day classes when it worked around my work schedule. And, and if there were courses in particular that I liked that were only offered during the day. And I kind of put together uh, my own informal intellectual property law concentration uh, for myself by taking all the courses the university offered in this area. And again, my, my interest was in news, uh, the news business, uh, new technology, how to leverage information, uh, how to analyze information uh, in order to create interesting news stories, but also hopefully to, to make some money. So as the dean was nice to mention, I, I was a broadcast journalist at 1010 Wins. And I was also at the Financial News Network when that first started. And then that ultimately got acquired by uh, CNBC. But you know, in true entrepreneurial spirit, uh, you know, when I was a, a broadcast journalist in the late 80s and trying to figure out uh, how could I go to law school but still uh, keep my hand in broadcasting, because I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And if you recall back then, for those uh, that might remember, Core TV, was just starting. So there actually seemed to be a way to even uh, marry journalism and, and broadcasting. So I had to get pretty innovative myself in figuring out how this was all going to work. And Fordham having an evening program and being very conveniently located uh, right here, at the time most of the broadcast operations were in the 50s on the west side. Uh, the Financial News Network was on 51st Street, 1010 Winch was on 57th Street. So I got the bright idea that uh, I could be a broadcaster all day and then run to law school at night. But my 10-10 win schedule was so bizarre, basically, uh, you know, the news watch never does stop, so you'd be called into work all hours of the day and night, and how would that deal with my evening classes? But I got the bright idea, maybe I should specialize as a broadcaster, and maybe I should specialize in a field that really is Monday to Friday, 9.30 to 4. And I just got the bright idea that I should become a financial journalist. So I basically made myself a financial journalist, and then when, when FNN started, the, the Financial News Network, I was one of the original broadcasters there. And then, of course, I, I stayed with that uh, when CNBC acquired FNN. So now I find myself at CNBC, which was in Fort Lee, New Jersey. So suddenly my, my great commute running from the 50s to Fordham was a little more challenging. Uh, but I did have a New York press plate, which allowed me to park almost anywhere certainly have treated it as such. And uh, ABC is only a few blocks away. There's a New York press zone over there. So I used to do a reverse commute, drive to Fort Lee in the morning, be at CNBC all day, drive down the West Side Highway, reverse commute in the afternoon, sneak into one of the NYP zones, grab a humongous coffee, and run in here uh, just in time for uh, a course. And then uh, you know, one of my favorite jokes from back then was uh, I had a professor, uh, Professor Byrne, for torts. And early in the uh, semester, it was the first or second night of my first year, he's going through the roll call, he gets to me, and he looks up from the podium and he says, Mr. Kelp, I recognize that name. I think I must be hearing your father every day on 1010 Wins. And I said, actually, uh, Professor, that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm on 1010 Wins. And he said, well, if you're on 1010 Wins in the morning, what are you doing in my class in the evening? And then I made a mistake. I thought it would be a funny thing to say. I said, uh, with all due respect, Professor, the best I possibly can to stay awake. <laughs> well, 
He started calling on me almost every night. Uh, <laughs> but if you know torts class, what is torts? But a, torts is basically a news story with a holding, right? You, you, it's, everybody's got a crazy set of facts, but there's some kind of moral to the story. It's really not a whole lot different than that. So, so one day, the professor was in particular looked really trying to rattle me, and as I walked out of the class, he said to me, he says, you know, Mr. Kill, you're, you're, you seem to be up on the reading. You know, you, you're kind of tough to rattle. And I said, I, I have to tell you, Professor, I, I said, the only thing different between your class and my day job is you're the host and I'm the guest. It's just not all that different. And if I screw up in the morning, two and a half million people think I'm a bozo and I get fired. If I screw up in your class, all right, a few hundred students might think I'm ill-prepared, but the world won't end. And then, uh, thankfully, we, we kind of became buddies after that. He stopped calling on me every night. <laughs> so uh, I'm at CNBC, and I'm expecting to be a traditional lawyer, uh, or maybe a traditional lawyer who also stays in the broadcast business by doing something at some place like Port TV. And then one day, uh, somebody comes into the newsroom at CNBC and says, there's a new tool uh, in the newsroom. If anybody wants to use it, there's this box. Uh, it's over there. There's going to be some guy to come in and show us how to use it. But if anybody cares, uh, the thing's called a Bloomberg term. So uh, I can't. Uh, I decided I was going to try to figure out what this thing was and how it worked. And, and now today, you all take for granted the internet. You take for granted uh, email. Uh, you take for granted all forms of social media. But this is the early 1990s, and there was no internet, and there was no email, and this box in the corner, uh, you know, by today's standards looked pretty archaic, but by 1992 standards looked extremely cool. So I thought, I gotta, I gotta check this thing out. So I started to play with this thing, and I started to realize that I could actually very quickly generate exceptionally good news stories by seeing the data and how it's analyzed on this Bloomberg terminal. And what really made that awesome was not only could I come up with great news stories quickly that nobody else would have, but in between coming up with those great news stories and going on the air, I had more time to prepare for class. <laughs> so it was working out uh, well all the way around. So as I'm playing with this thing, uh, you know, I'm immersing myself in the terminal, and obviously I'm realizing that this, this new innovation could be a very, very big deal. And that's you know, kind of lesson number one of, of a few things I want to mention this morning. You know, try, it's easy to say, not always easy to do, try to spot the next big thing. What is the next big thing? It's often going to be something that's done with a combination of, of industry-specific knowledge. You already know something about an area. Uh, you're going to have to do a lot of research to figure out what else exists and, and why this thing might apply to a certain market. And then great intuition helps, uh, too. You know, at the end of the day, uh, you kind of pull all this stuff together and you do what your gut tells you to do. Well, to me, as I was interviewing with law firms, and just not necessarily feeling uh, the connection that you might want to feel. Again, I was a career broadcaster, so certainly going to work at a traditional law firm was going to be a, a big change in uh, corporate culture, to say the least. Uh, and, I, and I'm playing around with this Bloomberg terminal, and I'm just increasingly more uh, impressed with it. So I actually started to come to the conclusion, which, which certainly was not uh, a traditional one, that maybe after doing all this work and, and working seven days a week as a broadcaster to put myself through law school, maybe I wouldn't go to a traditional law firm, which seemed like a, a, you know, maybe a crazy idea. Certainly the, the people I spoke to that were more traditional lawyers and academics, you know, 
Warren Short was the greatest thing. But it was funny, I, I had a conversation with, uh, with my dad about it at the time. And I remember telling him, you know, my dad was, was surprised I wanted to go to law school because he thought I really loved broadcasting. And then I go to law school, and uh, I'm saying I might not even want to be a traditional lawyer. And, you know, as, as only dad could do, he just kind of smiled and said, well, listen, Carl, no, no one's going to know better uh, what you want to do than yourself. So, you know, step back and figure it out, and, and I'm sure you'll make a good decision. Good, good life uh, advice. So I thought, I, I really do want to go work for this Bloomberg guy. But, but how am I going to do that? Uh, I, I understand the, the box, but, but what, what am I going to do for this guy? And then came a, a real watershed moment. I found out that Mike Bloomberg uh, had acquired, uh, for $13 million in cash, uh, a big band radio station, uh, WNEWAM 1130. And I figured, uh, this guy's now looking to add consumer media, traditional broadcast media, to his very young uh, financial data empire. And I thought, this is the absolute perfect opportunity to contact this guy. And that's kind of lesson number two. Uh, figure out what you want to do and go for it. Be bold. You know, you've heard it before, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Right? So how am I going to get a hold of Mike Bloomberg? Well, he just bought a radio station. I work in the news business at CNBC and 1010 Wins. I'm just going to call him up. So I called, called Mike Bloomberg and basically just told the front desk reception, hi, it's Carl Kilt at CNBC. Can I speak to Mike Bloomberg? A couple seconds later, Mike Bloomberg's on the phone. And then comes lesson number three. Uh, when you get to that point in your life, you better have one heck of a well-rehearsed pitch. Right? I didn't even appreciate at that moment what a direct, fast-moving, impatient, and of course, lovable guy he could be. But I figured I, I, I better have a really well-rehearsed uh, pitch for this guy. right? So I, I did. I was ready to go, and, and fortunately, being a career broadcaster, I'm used to, if I can give you the world in 20 minutes, I could, I could probably you know, give him a pitch of 45 seconds, which is pretty much what I, what I had to do. So, so I introduced myself, uh, told him that I use his terminal every day at CNBC. Figured he'd love to hear that, right? Told him I absolutely loved it. But it didn't end there. I had some thoughts on how to improve it, some data I thought he should add to it, uh, some things that end users might find uh, beneficial. And I also told him, I heard he just bought uh, a radio station. Uh, as I mentioned, it was a big band station. Uh, but I told him I figured it out pretty quickly. He probably didn't buy the radio station because he was a big Frank Sinatra Tony Bennett fan. Uh, I figured he wanted it because it was a 50,000 watt clear channel, one of the best signals in the country, and that he wanted to start a financial radio station. And I could certainly help him with that. In fact, I, I couldn't imagine anybody uh, more suited uh, to help him than me which again, you know, may have been a bold statement, but I, I believed it. Uh, so Mike uh, invited me in for an interview. Didn't say much to me on the phone. He basically said, what are you doing at 1.30 tomorrow? I can see you at 1.30 tomorrow. Now, luckily for me, huge break. I'm a morning broadcaster and an evening law student. So 1.30 was about as good as it gets to go, go meet him. Of course, I would have had to blow something off to go see him, but I, I, I went in there to see him at, at 1.30 that day, which was in uh, September of 92. So uh, we had a conversation that I wouldn't really describe as a job interview. It was more like all about the Bloomberg terminal, all about the media business, all about where we thought it was going. And I started to realize that, that he understood that if he created a global radio and TV network, 
it not only would showcase his uh, financial data and give him an opportunity to leverage all that, that content in, in other ways, but ultimately, it would be a phenomenal way to increase his brand and get people to understand what Bloomberg is and does. And uh, as I was talking to him, I noticed that he kept uh, blowing off other appointments. I was in a glass-enclosed conference room behind his desk uh, at the original office at 499 uh, Park Avenue and 59th Street. And as he's blowing these people off, uh, who I later found out were extremely important people once I got a job there and understood these, who these people were, uh, I realized that this guy's spending time with me for a reason. Hopefully I'm resonating. Hopefully he's ultimately going to make, uh, make me an offer. And it was funny, he said to me, well, what do you see yourself doing here, uh, initially and, and big picture? And I told him, well, I'm a broadcaster uh, right now, and I can certainly help you get the broadcast operations off the ground. But I'm, I'm more than halfway through law school, and uh, what I'd really like to do is be uh, in-house general counsel at a, a media and information technology company. And he smiled. And he said, uh, you know, something along the lines of, you know, well, well you haven't passed the, the bar exam yet, have you? You said you're still in, in school. And I said, well, you, you asked me what my long-term uh, view is. And I, I said, I expect to finish law school on time, pass the bar exam, and, uh, and I would love to be able to uh, build and run a legal department here uh, at Bloomberg. So then Mike said something to me really funny. He said, well, listen, I don't know what you're going to do with your big picture. Broadcasting, law, it sounds to me there are all kinds of things you can do. But the one thing you really got to be able to do in life, and you got to be able to do for me, is you got to be able to sell. If you can't sell, you really can't do anything. Why should I think you can sell? And I looked at him, and I said, well, Mike, less than 24 hours ago, you had no idea who I was. I cold called you. I got a meeting. You keep blowing off people that look important to talk to me. And it sounds like you're about to make me a job offer. Are we done here? <laughs> so I, I convinced him I could sell. And uh, he offered me a job. And this, again, was long before there were, there, there were human resources or legal department or anything else at, at Bloomberg. So it was basically Mike offers you a job and shakes your hand, and then you got a job. So uh, kind of another lesson here uh, that I want to get across is uh, industry knowledge is absolutely essential to the effective practice of law. I had never worked at a law firm. Uh, I've still never worked at a law firm. Uh, but I knew all about the financial markets, and I knew how to use uh, and create data. I understood mass media, and I was trained uh, in the intellectual property law and securities regulations areas, uh, the two practice areas really at the heart of what Bloomberg does. Uh, so arguably, uh, to me, uh, I, was, I was really well qualified. And in fact, nobody at any law firm back then would have had any more experience than me in electronic messaging and electronic trading because those things hadn't even been invented yet. So uh, I, I felt pretty comfortable that I'd be able to, to pull things together. So, so I had a phenomenal 22-year career there. Uh, we built all kinds of things at, at Bloomberg, obviously from the terminal to uh, traditional broadcast, print media, website, electronic trading and order routing functionality, trade order management systems. Uh, we sliced and diced uh, public domain and proprietary data in all kinds of ways. We created value for our customers with homegrown analytics. Uh, we asked traders what they wanted, and we built stuff to help them uh, that they also could not have even conceived of on their own. And through all this innovation, 
which also included the use of biometric authentication. We actually uh, had patents at Bloomberg on biometric authentication. We figured out, you know, what's the best way to make sure that the wrong people don't get access to financial data and only the right people get to trade those portfolios. Uh, we also wanted to make sure that everybody had his or her own license and wouldn't share licenses because that would help our revenue generation. So we pioneered uh, biometric authentication and, and we sought and received uh, patent protection uh, for those things. Many other things at Bloomberg we didn't seek patent protection for because frankly we didn't want them to ever be off patent. Uh, if I had sought patent protection for a lot of things in the early 90s, you might see generic Bloombergs today. Uh, and they'd be looking for me. It would not be a good story, right? So, so unfortunately, we kept those things trade secrets, uh, much like the formula for Coca-Cola or anything else that's kind of trade secreted forever. So now it's, it's wild to look back on how many years it's been since I got out of here. And, uh, and when you think about it, I, you know, I, I even joined Bloomberg before I got out of here. So it really is about half my life's passed uh, since I first joined uh, Bloomberg back in 92. Uh, and I'll fast forward to 2014 uh, when I decided to, to leave Bloomberg. Uh, no easy decision. Uh, and you know, it was obviously extremely rewarding uh, to know and, and work closely with the founder of Bloomberg. But I got to a point in my life uh, where I decided I wanted to be a founder myself. And I wanted to go the entrepreneurial route. And I, I didn't want to be uh, only working necessarily for one company. I wanted to be able to uh, kind of take my skill set and try to use it in a number of different ways. Uh, so now I am an entrepreneur who regularly calls upon my legal experience, including my understanding of intellectual property law, uh, to determine how to choose what to invest in and how to help the companies that I'm involved with. So when evaluating an opportunity, uh, not just me, but, but most likely any smart venture capitalist will want to know, what is the innovation? What's truly innovative about what I'm taking a look at? Uh, what's the problem that this thing is solving? Uh, or the market that this thing is addressing. How big is that problem and how big is that market? Uh, you, you may have something like a Bloomberg terminal that may generate interest from 400,000 people, but if each of those 400,000 people are willing to pay $25,000 a year for it, well, 400,000 people is more than enough. But other products where the price point might be a lot lower, you're going to need to find a way to make sure that uh, a lot more people are going to want why is the product unique? Uh, how has it been protected uh, if it has already been protected? And if not, what are you going to do to make sure it gets protected uh, from an intellectual property point of view? And of course, what could ultimately the revenue projections be? So before even going down the path of trying to create something innovative, uh, you need to know the universe of what's already out there. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to do uh, a patent search and see what's already out there. And, uh, once you think you have something truly innovative, obviously you need to protect it. And again, that's most likely to be through uh, a patent application. And then once you have something ready for the market, you need to determine how to commercialize or, or monetize it. And, and more and more licensing is part of that equation. And big data, which is certainly my background at Bloomberg, seems to be part of, of almost everything uh, we do, including some element of, of a transaction, uh, you know, putting people together. I mean, I, I never would have conceived. I, some of the companies with the biggest market caps today uh, will be offering things like customized taxi services and uh, rooms for rent in someone else's home. Uh, you may not have conceived of things like that as being innovative, but uh, in those cases, the innovation was in the connectivity. It was creating awareness of availability, creating
awareness of an empty car and a person that needs a ride, creating awareness of an empty room in somebody's house and somebody that needs uh, a place to stay. So again, in those cases, the, the, the connectivity was the, uh, was the innovation. So much like Bloomberg pioneered electronic trading in the 1990s, uh, after centuries of people uh, screaming at each other on, on trading floors, these are, are new forms of uh, innovation, where instead of waving your hand in the pouring rain uh, to try to get a taxi, you just tap an app and the car shows up for you. Uh, again, it's funny, having been at a Bloomberg in the early uh, 90s, when people did spend centuries screaming at each other on the floor of the stock exchange to make a trade, and then explaining to people, no, no, instead of go going to this specific location for the stock exchange, and screaming at people to be heard and get your, your, your trade filled, you're actually going to key in your order on this screen. You're going to hit a button, and any potential counterparty to your order is going to see it. And whoever hits the bid first is going to be your, your trading partner on that trade. And you may even get them to bid up the price, and you may actually get a better price. And this was just mind-blowing to people that again, had grown up screaming at each other to get, to get trades done. And I do kind of equate it in, in, in some analogy there to the person that's used to standing on the street corner waving their hand furiously, and now all of a sudden, you know, the, the car just shows up for you. So uh, I'd like to, to highlight a couple of companies uh, that, I'm, that I'm involved with uh, to, to illustrate a few other points uh, before I run out of time uh, this morning. The first company is called Oloro Global Limited. And it's a startup, it's based here in New York, and you probably haven't heard of it, uh, heard of it. B-O-L-O-R-O, uh, -O -O, Valoro Global Limited. And this is a company that I think is gonna very soon be at the center of the mobile phone-based uh, world that we're, we're living in. Uh, billions of transactions are done online uh, every day, many of them over the phone, and uh, it's no secret that credit card fraud is one of the, the biggest problems uh, out there. Literally tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars are wasted on uh, credit card fraud and uh, disputes. Uh, and a lot of these disputes happen with what are called card not present transactions uh, that are done online. Uh, major, major fraud uh, problem. And certainly, you know, every time you pull out your credit card, you gotta wonder, you know, is, is the wrong person gonna get my credit card number? and then start uh, messing with it. So how do you stop that? What do you, what do, you do about it? And uh, what Valoro's done is they have uh, come up with a really unique authentication platform. Uh, so unique that they patented it in 49 countries, including the US, uh, with another 38 countries uh, pending. And basically how this thing uh, works in kind of layman's terms is you have your phone and Instead of using a credit card number, you can use your phone number to do the transaction. So you might think, well, gee, how secure is that if, if everybody knows my phone number? Well, what happens is the merchant sends a message to your mobile phone, and then you enter in a four-digit PIN that only you know to validate the purchase. So now what's happened is two things that nobody should have. Everybody might know your phone number, or at least any number of people might know your phone number. But they don't have your physical handset, and they don't have your secure PIN number. And your secure PIN number, right after you enter it, and it goes to the, your issuer, 
to approve the transaction, it disappears from your phone, much like an Amber Alert. So even if somebody had stolen your phone, they wouldn't be able to get your PIN number. Now I'm looking at this, this technology uh, a number of months ago, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, transactions, right? They need to be immediate. They need to be secure. The, the best person to authenticate a transaction is who? The person that just did it, right? The person whose credit card is being used, the person who's paying for this thing, the person that just made the deal. Well, if you're putting it, the security literally in the hands of the person by sending a message to his or her phone, and I, you know, now, now even people my age just seem to be spending so much time on phones, but people younger than me, I mean, I, I, I'm dodging them on the street, right? So everybody's walking down the street looking at their screen. So certainly to spend a split second in the checkout line to hit this four-digit code to make sure that you don't get ripped off seems to me like something that people are going to be more than willing to do, especially when, when fraud is, is just, you know, many tens of billions of dollars uh, problem. So basically, uh, you know, look out for Valoro. Uh, and it, it's device agnostic, meaning it works on any phone, uh, smartphone, what, what some people call a dumb phone, phone that doesn't have all the smarts. Basically, it's still going to work, uh, because all you need to be able to do is, is have any rudimentary form of text on your phone, uh, and this thing is going to work. So I think, uh, I think it's phenomenal, uh, and, and that's why uh, I get involved and, and, and absolutely make sure the company does all it can possibly do uh, to further its own IP and uh, ultimately license this technology to uh, all kinds of entities, banks, credit cards, you name it, that want to prevent fraud. Another company I just want to mention, uh, because I'm, I, I just love the company and I think there's a great IP message here, uh, is a thing called Shimio. So it couldn't be any more different than Valoro. You know, Valoro is trying to prevent tens of billions of dollars in fraud. Shimio uh, is all about fun. Uh, this is an app that allows users to instantly create professional quality music videos on their mobile phones. <coughs> I have three kids, and my kids think it's pretty cool to uh, lip sync to popular songs and create uh, music videos uh, with their friends. But I got a room full of IP lawyers here. Uh, does anybody see an immediate problem with this joyful act? Anybody? I mean, you gotta, you, you, you know, presumably you would need to license the music, right? You, you, you wouldn't think you would just put popular music in this app. Now, if anybody's familiar with this space, what have companies traditionally done? Have they licensed the music or have they just gone forward with the apps? And then the music industry waits for the right time to smack them down. Has that been the norm? Yeah, I see some people nodding their head. So, so I'll, I'll kind of just cheat and tell you that's what typically happens. Typically people uh, launch these apps, they think they have a great idea, except they've kind of forgotten about this little piece called getting the rights to the music, and then they get smacked down uh, by the music industry. So, uh, of course I'm not bringing up Shimio uh, because they uh, are bad guys, I'm bringing up Shimio because they're, they're good guys. And uh, what they decided to do was not only did they create, uh, at least in my humble opinion, and the humble opinion of my three focus group members, uh, my kids that have played with this thing and their, and their buddies, they think this thing is the coolest uh, music video creating app. 
Uh, but when these guys happen to come to me through a mutual friend and say, hey, Carl, what do you think we should do? I said, listen, let me, let me understand from you guys. Let me really unpack what you need about what you guys have built here. And I helped them get a patent application filed. But then came the bigger question. Uh, is this only going to be something for new artists that, that control their own music? Or is this going to be something for people that want to use popular music? And if so, uh, what are you going to do about the, the licensing rights? Well, long story short is it took a while to get a hold of the right people in the music industry and get in front of them with this uh, unique functionality. But uh, I'm really happy for the, the Shimio guys that they're right now in a position to be the first product of its kind to launch with licenses from the music rights holders. And uh, again, kind of the moral of the story why, why I bring them up this morning is uh, you know, doing things the right way uh, should result in, in a really happy ending. Uh, and, and it's important to, to understand uh, and respect people's IP. And it's important to figure out uh, how to collaborate. You know, not, not a lot of things in this world are done uh, by yourself. Figure out how to uh, collaborate. So just a couple of closing uh, remarks here before you get on to your, your sessions. Uh, try to understand the IP that already exists in any area uh, before trying to innovate in that area. Really is, a, a, again, a waste of time to try to reinvent the wheel. Uh, innovation must truly be innovative in a manner that's worthy of commercialization. Uh, otherwise, again, you're kind of wasting your time and money. Uh, you know, if you're going to build something that no one's going to buy, you might end up with something you think is cool, but obviously you want to have a, a broader audience than that. Uh, once you innovate, uh, protect your innovation with a well-drafted patent application. And remember there, uh, the first to file wins here in the US, uh, so it is a bit of a race, uh, and you're probably going to want to get a provisional patent application in to at least reserve the best possible priority date as you flesh out the specifics of your invention. Uh, file first, disclose to others later. Don't tell anybody what you're doing. Uh, get an application in first. Uh, I mean, of course, you might tell your patent attorney, but you don't want to be out there bragging about this cool new thing you came up with before you've actually filed your patent application. Uh, when someone tells me uh, that they think they're on to the next best thing, uh, I ask them if they've done any uh, patent searches and what their plans are for filing a patent. Um, and if anybody tells me, gee, patent, uh, filing a patent sounds expensive, uh, I tell them, look, it, it's not all that expensive, and, and the real the really expensive part will be the, the cost of the screw-up if you don't do it. Respect the intellectual property rights of others. Uh, much like these Shimeo guys, they did it the right way, and I think their perseverance is going to be uh, well rewarded. Uh, collaboration may yield uh, tremendously positive results. Your innovation may be a lot quicker to market and a lot more successful if you figure out who to work with and work out a good deal with them. Win-win. Uh, is a lot better than costly litigation uh, that delays your successful commercialization. And uh, as hopefully you've seen me do by, by indulging me and listening to my uh, very non-traditional career, when I say keep innovating, uh, I mean uh, also keep innovating yourself. Uh, keep reinventing uh, who you are. Uh, the days of people working decades at the same job, uh, you know, I don't know if they're over, but it's certainly not the same uh, world it was years ago. And anyway, what can be more fun than constantly uh, reinventing yourself and always finding uh, new ways to, to innovate uh, the reasons why you get out of bed every day?
Thanks a lot, everybody. I appreciate it. Have a great day.